Do you want to sh- do, do you want to share? Have you already told them the story? No, me? <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, you have to. Yeah, come here. We had a redemption moment last night. We, when we had dinner, he took me out, and he opened up his heart and shared something with me that I just had to laugh at. So he came for uh, like about an hour or something like that last year, and um, I had been singing. <coughs> I had been singing "Beauty, Beauty" uh, with the with the Vietnamese accent, <laughs> and, and so it it sounds like "Booty, Beautiful." That's that's basically what it is. We gaze upon your booty, Lord, and, <laughs> and I. I had, <laughs> I had been singing that around campus for a bit, so some people knew, and then he, he came into class to talk, and then uh, Daniel Lehman came and was like, David, you have to sing your song for, da-. I was like, no, 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 and he's like, no, no, dude, really, you got to, you got to, and then the whole class was like, yeah, bro, do it, do it, and then Jim Orrid is beside me, he's like, yeah, David, you should do it, I was like, oh, oh. <laughs> and uh, so then I sing it, and it was it was fairly quiet. It was just, it was there was, I don't know if like you were jet lagged or something, but it was. I was like, oh dear God. <laughs> and so then uh, then he left, and for a year I have been since that day I have been thinking about how to apologize. <laughs> Like, no joke. I have been like, should I write him an email? Do I wait for him to come? If I send him an email, maybe he's not going to get it and then all this stuff. And so I've been waiting for a year to apologize. No, and so last night I told him, he wasn't even offended. So I was like, oh, oh the burden was just, it was. <laughs> Guys, I am a free man. I'm a new man. I'm a changed man. By the glory of the Lord. So, Thank you. <laughs> 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 why they crack me up so much? Because my pastor told me like six months ago, he was like, yeah, my kids and I were walking on the beach and my little four-year-old was like singing, booty, booty, beautiful. And I thought of him. <laughs> But for a whole year, I felt so bad. I was the one feeling bad. I was like, bro, you don't have to carry that weight anymore. We release you in Jesus' name. <laughs> right. Oh. <laughs> no, no. It's, it's, we're all better. We have restoration, healing. Thank God. You can, now you have authority in that area. Now I want you to use it. No, <laughs> Mess up, mess up as many other people's songs as you want, and then like go back and. Songs are funny, isn't that weird? Songs are really funny. <laughs> I think about how. This is total bunny trail, but songs, songs, um, are special because they go into our heart and they they touch us in a way that like just knowledge can't, you know, and they they. They're so related to memory. They're so related to, like, you know, fun and laughter. And, and they can be related to 
negative emotions, you just go through a breakup or whatever. You know, you just like, a song like says what you want to say. It's funny. Well, hello. Hello. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to this week. I really am. And you guys sound like you're a very lovely, hungry group of hearts that are really wanting to grow in what it means to be a worship leader, a worshiper, you know, music, heart, singing. So, yeah, it's going to be really good this week. And uh, I'm excited to be here, glad to be here, um, finally meet you in person. Samantha sent me some pictures. I got to see your faces a little bit before. You guys all look great. I know I'm seeing some, but you, you look great. <clears throat> And uh, she sent you the ones, I guess it's the group photo and then the individual. Did you guys do that? You guys, you guys took pictures. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. So I, I didn't really get to know you. But, um, yeah, this, this week, we have a whole week together. And um, almost till Thursday, I think. Um, and uh, today we go from 9 to 12. Is that right? Have a break in the middle about 10.30? Okay. Um, so, yeah. Like, where do we start? You know, there's a lot of ways and ways to start. I guess I'll start with um, introducing myself a little bit. I'm sure that'll happen over the week. You get to know a little bit more about me and as a person. And, you know, immediately... And isn't this not true? When you first see a person, you already make like 10 or 15 judgments about them, good and bad, just like, oh, I get it. They're this, they're this, 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 this. Un, yeah, like that unsaid kind of like, oh, I just, I know them or I get them. And um, It's really true, though, that how a person will make you feel is more important than even a lot of times what they say, you know. And that's really what character is all about, if you want to say that. Character is more than words. Character is your your internal makeup that makes you who you are. You know, it makes you say what you say, do what you do. And so it's both things. It's your motivation, but it's also your formation. It's like what you end up being formed into, you know. So when you first meet a person, you know, a lot of times you can instantly kind of get a sense of their character. You don't know them that great, but you just kind of like, oh, yeah. They're either like really mean and they're putting on a face or they're really nice or they're shy, or they're angry, or they're, you know, you, you get a feeling of their current state a lot of times when you just feel them. And who's like, who are feelers in this room? So like you walk into a room and you like feel everyone's emotions. Raise your, yeah, oh my gosh. Oh, you guys are all so sensitive. I have to be careful what I say. No, I'm just kidding. No, that, that's really, that's really remarkable. And isn't it funny though how a heart to worship Jesus a lot of times, the ones who really are invested in it are the ones who will feel a lot, you know. That doesn't, it's not necessarily true across the board because I know a whole bunch of businessmen and women who love to worship the Lord. And it has nothing to do with, but a lot of times the feeler, the feeler type person will be more gravitated towards music, the emotion of music. They were just worshiping the Lord, you know, and the whole emotional side of God. You know, you're really in touch with that. So that's interesting. Raise your hands again. How many? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. 
well, that's amazing. And it's okay, and don't, don't feel bad if you're not raising your hand. You're like, I, I just know now that you don't feel anything, so don't worry about it. That's fine. <laughs> that's your <laughs> emotionless, just robots. <laughs> no, but I get that. You just kind of move to, you know, you know, on that pendulum. It can be a pendulum. Sometimes, have you ever been seasons where you're like so emotional and then other seasons where you feel just kind of like blah? You know, right? You feel in that pendulum swing. So you're not never static. We're human beings. We grow. We, we go through things. You know, we, we learn. But um, it's important to, to know who you are. It's really important to know who you are and to live out of that place. Because um, you do. You live out of that place whether you like it or not. That's the thing. You, if you have an expectation of something about yourself, about someone else, about God, you live out of that place. You can't, you can't fool yourself. My actions and my words are physical evidence of where I'm at in life. Things could have happened to me. I could have, you know, so many, whatever, I could have, done this, done that, but in reality, I am daily expressing through my actions and words who, I'm, who I am and where I am at, so to speak. And I'm living out of who I am. The, the, one of the coolest names about God, I think, um, I would love for him to clarify this with me. What is his favorite name about himself? But I really like the one where he says, I am that I am. Because it's almost like it's not a name, but it is. You know, your name is that you exist, that you are. You know, what does that mean? Like, how can your identity be wrapped up in the fact that you are the living one? You are, the, you are always present. I am means like, I am. I'm here. I'm present. I'm with you. I'm not just in the future. I'm not in the past. I'm not calling you to some impossible standard. I'm not beating you up for your failures. I am present with you right now. I am that I am. Now, he is the one who was, who is, and who is to come. So he is in all three places at the same time. Because he said that about himself. He says, I am the God of what? Abraham, Isaac, and yeah. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in that same phrase, he says, I am not the God of the dead, but of the living. So what truth can we glean from that right now? What about God can you learn from the fact that he is present with you right now? Just, I don't know why I want to take a second. Okay, so what, yeah, how does it impact you? What's the first thing you think of? I am that I am, that God is present with you right now. You don't have to have something profound to say. (laughs) It could be very, really simple. 
That's huge. You never have to be lonely. That's massive. Because the essence of loneliness is the absent of, okay, let's, let's dive into that. So who has been with someone and in a group of people, but you still feel lonely? I have. So the very physical presence of someone is not enough to take away that feeling of loneliness, right? And I think throughout life, as you get into relationships, some of you, you may be married, ultimately, that companion doesn't take away that deep-seated feeling of aloneness and loneliness that we have as individuals. Because really, I am in an individual, and so are you. And as close as we would want to interact and get together, there's like an invisible wall that we could never cross. I could never be you. I could never get on your mind. I could never, you know, connect at that deep level. And so that seems, it almost sounds fatalistic. It's like, well, what's the point of life? Whatever, you know, just because we all long for that. We long to be known and we long to know. And the one who is present, the I am that I am. It's more than his, because his physical presence isn't even here. You know, but he's present with us in a way that's beyond the exterior. And the disciples had the physical presence, but they didn't have the presence of the Holy Spirit yet. And it changed their life when they experienced the present tense experience of the Holy Spirit that he is with me. He will never leave me or forsake me. I will never have to be lonely again. I will never have to experience that feeling of abandonment in my heart because he is with me and he has never left me. That's really good. Y'all never have to be lonely. Anything else? The I am that I am. <laughs> real talk. Real talk. <laughs> Hashtag real talk. <laughs> yes, it's scary. It's very scary. Elaborate on that a little bit more. Why for you, what emotion does that bring up? Scary meaning like fear? He is that he is. So he being like, it's scary because he's more real than you are, than I am. That's a really good, I'm glad you followed that trail of thought. So really the fear is fear of the unknown. He, he is, he's present, but you, you can't see him. And you, there's, you can never predict it. That's good. I just want you to follow even that trail of that phrase. It's scary 
with why that's scary for you, you know? Like, why am I afraid that God is ever-present? It could be, okay, that means he's always there in everything that I do. Good, bad, ugly, prideful, shameful. It's all, he's there. And honestly, I doubt few of us feel his eyes on us, or at least we, we block it off when we do something we, we shouldn't do. We know we shouldn't do. Because I don't know, to, to be aware of that is, that is scary. Or to be alone and you have to make a hard choice in your heart. And the ever-present one is there with you. He is the I am that I am. But you, get, you don't get to know him. You, you, you can know him in that place of loneliness. Or you can close yourself off from him and say, I... I don't want to get to know you. And the reason I go here is because um, Jesus invited us into something when he said, at the end of your life, <clears throat> I'm going to say to you something surprising probably for a lot of us. So basically, he's going to say this to me. He's going to say this to you. He's going to say this to everyone who ever walked the face of the earth. He's going to say I never knew you. That's one thing he could say. How was that possible? With him being the I am that I am. With him being ever present, watching everything that I do, in tune with everything that I say, in me, around me, I exist because of him. I would not be here if it was not for him. How could it be that he not know me? How could it be that this God who created everything, he created my ability to think, my ability to feel for all of you feelers out there, your ability to not feel for all of you non-feelers out there. For, no, I'm just kidding. For all, for, for, he created you fully from head to toe. He made you. You exist because of him. So how could he get to the end of your life, you die, and then you stand before him and he say, I never knew you. How is that possible? Oh, Lord. You know me. You know me, Jesus. <laughs> you know me. Thank you so much, Santa. <laughs> oh, 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 you know me. Oh. oh, that's so good. Oh, my gosh. You guys do good coffee here. You do good coffee. Do they do Kona coffee in the thing? Wow. Wow. You live in Kona. It's another one of the great mysteries of life. Why don't you just always use Kona coffee? You're in Kona. <laughs> great unsolved mysteries. This is so good. Is this, what drink is this so I know to get it next time? It's a mocha? Oh. Mmm. You know, coffee just changes your perspective on life, on God, on everything. <laughs> so much more happy. 
Oh. But again, what I was saying, Samantha, just here in tune, we, we went from, we've kind of been on a slightly a bunny trail, but it's, it's where we're, where the Lord's taking us. But about being known by God, him is the great I am. Talking about, uh, we went from character, what it means to be character, to then go, uh, to have character. What is character? It is your existence. It's your mode of existence. And it's your internal makeup, who you are inside. And you always live out of that place. You always live out of who you are, whether you like it or not. And so now we're at the point of going, God, how can you be present with us always, the I am that I am, and still I could be blocked off to you. Still you could not know me. Still I could be alienated and lonely in my experience of you and get to the end of my life and realize I maybe knew a lot about you. And that's what they said. Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? Didn't we cast out demons in your name? They had good theology. They knew that God was powerful. They knew that he was able to cast out demons and heal the sick. God, didn't we do these things in your name? We said, in the name of Jesus, come out. And they left. How is that possible to be walking and moving in the things of God and still be alienated from him in your heart to the point where he would say, I don't recognize you. I don't know you. You're, you're here, but we don't have anything in common. We never shared anything together in life. That scary thought. That we could be around the things of God and yet never let him in. That we could be so close yet so far away. That we could be so close to home at the edge and never walk in the door and never sleep in our bed and never sit down and eat the table at the table and eat dinner. There's a vast difference between knowing him intellectually and knowing about him and doing his works and singing his songs and looking like we know him versus actually being his friend and walking that journey of friendship with him. Because you know what friendship is. You probably had friends, a lot of you, since you were younger. Maybe you still do. I, I want to, I'm going to just ask a question. Who has had, I want to see who has, has had the longest friend. Like, when was the, your first friend? Okay, I'll start at age like seven. Do you remember having a friend at age seven? Raise your hand. Okay, age six. Keep your hand raised. I know it's kind of like hard to tell. Well, yeah, but I'm just saying like from the youngest to now. Well, no, no. Oh, yeah, I should, I should rephrase the question. Yeah, that's a good point. So basically, like who has had the longest span of friendship with someone here? Yeah, yeah. So think of a person in your life. Let's just say this. Think of a person in your life. How long have you been friends with them? Okay, so five years. Raise your hand. You've had a friend for five years. Huh? Yeah, currently friends. Still currently friends. <laughs> Five years. Does it count on Facebook? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah. Well, yes. Yes, I know. I'll give you permission, Samantha. You can have the Facebook clause. Okay, and so 10 years. 15 years. 
um, 20 years. I know a lot of you guys are like 20 years old. <laughs> I was realizing this as we were going on. <laughs> you could teach us about friendship. <laughs> you could teach us about friendship. Okay, you, you win. You win. <laughs> How many years? 22 years. 32 years. Wow. Wow. That's amazing. Wow. That's beautiful. So that is a feat in and of itself, right? Because you know the effort that it takes to be a friend. You know it's a two-way street. You know it's not just give or just take. It's give and take. And you know that having a friendship over a long time takes intentionality. It takes effort. You don't get a lot of kickback. You're just, you're, you're a friend. It's an intentional choice. That's what it means to be a friend. Now, that's at a human level. But when God says, I no longer call you servants, I call you friends. What in the world is he talking about? Is he talking about this static state? Oh, I just got upgraded on my platinum status on my airline. Went from this class to first class. No. This is, yeah, you could say it like that. Yeah, we got upgraded majorly from like low class to high class, from being a servant to a friend. But what is that friendship about? What is friendship with God? To be known by God. Because your friends, that's one of the things that sets them apart from other people you've known for however many years is they know you. Right? They speak into your life. You speak into theirs. There's permission there. There's permission given. Friendship has an openness to it. It has a vulnerability in it. There's a lot of characteristics of friendship that we could point at and go, what is it to be a friend of God? And we look at this through a human lens, but it helps us. We don't have to look at this through some, like, God, what in the world are you saying? Like, you speak in such riddles, and you're so ambiguous. You know, you're so, like, ethereal and out there. The God we could never know. I know you're here. But, no, he has made himself so plain in this very fact that he became one of us. That his character, who he was and is as a God, would be so expressed in this one thing that God, not in a sense of uh, codependency, not in a sense of neediness, but out of an abundance of love and compassion and mercy in his heart, says, I can't stand this anymore. I have to know what it's like to be one of you, to walk on your earth, to taste your food, to give myself to you totally. Jesus, as the friend of sinners, which it says he's called, became a friend, not of the elite in society, but he became a friend of sinners. He became available to people who had failed, who had messed up, who were screwed up in their lives. That's who he became a friend to. It, he didn't define himself a friend of of um, 
parliament, a friend of Pharisees, Sadducees, a friend of the Roman government, a friend of sinners. So in as much as we experience our own sinfulness, it is there we experience his friendship. Because he said, I didn't come to call the healthy. I came to call the sick. I didn't come to call the righteous. I came to call sinners to repentance. Therein is his character. He's not in this for, for stars on his shoulder. He's not in this that we would think he's more awesome than all the other gods. He's in this to go the lowest. He's in this to make himself known to the most broken, to the most needy, to the most willing to receive him. That's who he wants to be friends with. So think back to your early days when it was time to pick the team for dodgeball. Who did you want on your team? You didn't want Dick Jackson. Who's, who's that? Nice. Bro, you got picked already. Where? Oh. Dave, you said David Jackson? Oh, I, I thought you said it's another name. Sorry. Sorry, bro. Respect. That was not disrespect. I knew. <laughs> You're like, it's all good. I did it to you. No kidding. <laughs> Humble me. <laughs> I deserve it. No. <laughs> yeah. So you remember that whole process of like comparing yourself and just like feeling good because you got picked or feeling bad because you were left out. Like, there's something intrinsic about wanting to be the friend of someone who's popular or wanting to be recognized, you know? That's something so, since we're little, like, no one teaches us that. No one says, like, you need to be friends with this person because you'll look cool. It's, it's a feeling. Like, I want to, by association, we are known by association. Oh, they're your friends? Oh, I get it. You hang out with them? Oh, I get it. Like, it's just ever since we were little. That's not a good or bad thing. That's just the way it is. That's why it's so counter our culture, counter Eastern culture, counter Western culture, counter every culture that God, who is the one we should bow down and serve and love. And, you know, every culture gets that. They get that God's big, that we all need to worship him, that we all need to make him happy, whatever that means, you know, to appease God. That's why people do sacrifices. That's why they do crazy things, because they don't want to feel shame and they want to make God happy. They want to get him off my case, you know, by association with him. Oh, I'm on good terms with God now. It's intrinsic in who we are. But realizing that this God has now come so low, so close, in order that we may be known. Not by association that God needs to be more popular, but he has all the glory and is most amazing. But that he wants intimacy. He wants to be known at the core of who he is, not out of codependency, not out of neediness, but deep desire that we would experience and enter into his joy. That he would serve us so low that we would enter into his goodness, his joy. What kind of God is that? It does not compute. We don't, we can't get this kind of God in our natural mind.
And in that process, where we see him for who he is, he then says, I came to that which was my own. So basically, he came to this whole creation that he had made and fashioned with his own hands, which sounds big and ethereal, but it's really just you and me. He came to his own. We didn't make ourselves. We were born. We were created by his loving hand and let go like a bird. And he let us go, and he came to that which was his own, but it said his own did not receive him. His own did not want to be known by him. His own pushed him away out of shame and fear, out of a religious spirit and a political spirit. They said, you are your illegitimate child. You're a friend of tax collectors and sinners. We hear that you teach people not to pay the tax. All these accusations about him, his religious pedigree was nothing. And the political spirit was against him. We don't want to touch him because there's so much controversy surrounding him. How can this guy say he's God? He's a human. We watched him grow up. Like he's played, you know, he, whatever soccer, the Middle Eastern equivalent of soccer is. He played soccer with the kids. You know, he went to school. We watched him grow up. Like he's normal. He's one of us. How can he now at 30 say he's God? There was, he was a stigma. He was an enigma. An enigma. He was, he was, he was, there was full of, there was, there was a shame that could have covered his life. It said in Isaiah 53, it says, like one from whom then hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. I was walking the other day in Pasadena and I was driving on the road and I had this experience and um, I, I, um, I was walking by this bank, and there were two people, one person in a wheelchair, another person walking. And the closer I got, I saw this person who was really disfigured. And they had these, I think it was boils or warts. I don't know what they were, but on their face and their whole body. And they were walking up to the person in the wheelchair. The person in the wheelchair was very broken physically. And as I was driving past this wash came over me. And I and instantly I said, I, I knew that in society they would be the ones that people would hide their faces from. Instantly, it wasn't like, oh, there's, there's Brad Pitt. There's like, it wasn't that drawing of beauty. There was a, oh, that's hard to look physically. And I realized that feeling I'm feeling is how, what Jesus experienced as a man. It says he was despised and rejected like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised. And in that moment, I realized you identified with the ones who society has cast out. And it's never in the Lord's heart that he would, he, he feels our pain. He feels their pain daily, physically, having to walk and encounter people who are probably so 
taken back by their physical appearance that they would never want to get to know their heart. They would never want to be their friend. They would never want to associate with them. They would never want to get to know their character, their insides. Instantly outside, they make a judgment. Oh, they may be contagious. Oh, they may be, they may get that on me, whatever that is. We're very aware in the world right now about Ebola. And if you knew someone had it, there's probably a stigma that attaches itself to them. And that's a very real example of people being quarantined, people being, you know, away from society. Just, I, I, I'm going to care. You're awesome. Stay away from me. You know? That is who Jesus identified with. And it is counter-cultural. My, my way of living, your way of living, does not want to, does not like that. And just the way it is. As much as we try to, you know, I, I know there's a lot of people who don't even love Jesus who go to the poorest of the poor. And they go to places, you know, like um, places with people who are very broken physically, you know, like nursing homes and, you know, these places. And, um, and they love and they serve them. And they, there's a joy. A lot of times I see a joy in their eyes that I don't see with other people. Other times I see a, 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 like a fatalism or resignation in their eyes. They're just like they, they want to get out of there, but they're doing it for some reason. You know, the ones serving Lowest of the low. And I go, like, what's the difference in experience with two people who are serving the lowest people, but one has a brightness in their eyes and a joy. The other one is just like, I'm, you know, they're worn out. They don't, you know, just very, what's the word? You guys know what I'm trying to say. They're just like spent. You know, they're just like. I wish I was not here. Jesus came and it didn't, we wasn't like he got here and was like, crap. <laughs> I mean, this was the stupidest idea I think we've ever had, you know. <laughs> and realizing, okay, I've got 30 years of this, 33. And, oh my gosh, what the heck did I do? It, he very well could have. We do know in the garden that he had an emotion, emotional reaction to what was coming. We know that he was so overwhelmed with sorrow and taking all the sins on the world that he's like, God, like if it's possible, let me find another way. We know that he was such a heavy burden for him to come and not only be with us, but take our sins on him. That he was like, God, is there another way? Is there another way through this? Then the gate of death. And he said, but not my will, but yours be done. He was so surrendered to this process. Because that was his character. That's who he was. His essence. Jesus was the expression of the Father. So it wasn't like Jesus was this, you know, 
We, we think of them as separate. No, they're all unique beings, but they're all working in perfect harmony. They have community. They have love. And this character, this heart to serve and go low isn't just in Jesus. It's not like God's the omnipotent God and Jesus is the humble one. No, they are all have the same essence. Three beings, same essence of love. Three beings, same essence of humility. They all share in the same essence, the same spirit. And in that same community of love, they invite us in to be known, to be a friend, to experience what that is. And that is true life. Because Jesus said right before he went to the cross, he's like, Father, that they would know you and they would know the one you sent, Jesus Christ. This is eternal life, that they would know us. This is what it means to, to have eternal life, to not just be in this normal plane of existence. To not just be coasting along in life. I can't coast. You can't. Time is too short to coast. God gave us the ability to have choices. We live with choice anxiety. I just got back from the Middle East. I was so stressed out trying to find a place to eat. When I got back the first night, I was like, I hate this. I'm like, there's so many options in L.A., like, I want to try American food again, but good grief. Like, I just, I was stressed out. Over there, you had nothing. You had nothing to choose. All you had was, like, you know, rice and grape leaves and hummus and pita bread, you know? And there you go. I know. It's awesome. <laughs> but it was still, like, your only choices. And they had, okay, they had pomegranates and oranges. They squeezed fresh in front of you everywhere you went. Oh, my gosh. It was unbelievable. Yeah. So that was my Middle East experience food-wise, and it was just off the charts. But I get back, and there's like choice overload. Who's been to the Middle East? Oh, wow, cool. A few of you. That's great. <sighs> I, will, I will share a little bit about that, I guess. That was a good time. Speaking of going into a culture that you don't get and understand, into people of foreign speech, See, the, I, I felt it so strong on this trip. I go, this is like I'm tasting what you felt. You know, like you went to a people like and, and you just you had no way to communicate what was really going on. Like you wanted to be known, but you didn't you didn't you, no one got you, you know, that you weren't received. I was received on this trip. It was great for the most part. Homeland Security, on my way there, interrogated me. Um, yeah, in LAX. I was like, what the heck? I was sitting there, and I was about to board my flight. And the guy just like, hey, come on over here. Opened up my backpack, starts asking me these really calm questions, and I'm, like, answering them. And he's still checking my bag, and he checks my wallet, and he still asks me questions. And I'm getting a little bit more just like, I don't want to miss my flight. And, and he's really calm, and then... He just gets more and more intense, and or I get no, he he stays calm, but my voice gets higher and higher. Eventually, I'm like at this high pitch. <clears throat> um, um, I live in Pasadena, you know. For the my, I was noticing my voice is getting more like. I was like, why am I getting nervous? And then it hit me. I was like, oh, he's totally interrogating me. So and it's because I, I shaved off a little bit of my beard, but I had a bigger beard at the time. And my final destination was northern Iraq, where ISIS is. So of course, you know. <laughs> They're like, hmm, 
<laughs> You're a musician. Oh, cool. <laughs> wow, why are you going to Northern Iraq? You have, and I'm bored in Arkansas. He's like, you have strange travel patterns for, a man, for an Arkansas guy. I was like, yeah, I'm a redneck, but I want to go to the Middle East. Is that okay? <laughs> no, but so I was, I was feeling that fear of going there. When I got there, um, there was uh, much less of a sense of uh, fear and terror than I thought internally. It was very close to what was happening. Um, I, uh, is this being recorded too? Okay. Um, yeah, that'd be awesome. I mean, if I say anything. So, um, for, for 50 days, I went over there and I, um, 50 days, 50 hour, 50 hour worship thing. So I got invited to go. I didn't have an angel from heaven. Wasn't like, you know, God saying thou shalt go to the Middle East. It was like the opportunity came. I don't know how you guys hear from the Lord, but there's a couple different ways you can, just go with the green light, or you can um, and say, God, stop me, or you can say, I'm stopped until you give me the green light. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So when an invitation comes, there's ways you can approach it. I approached it, which God is teaching me a lot through that, but I just went for it. And afterwards came the confirmation. You guys remember Sean Malone? He was here with Cry Crisis Response International. Maybe some of you guys. Okay. Anyway, he's the guy who runs this mega disaster response thing that was here on the base training people for a while. Um, but he has a team there, uh, Jordan and Jessica Danchik. They're from here as well, and they were there. But uh, over there, um, we did 50 hours of worship and prayer with a team that was kind of compiled. And um, from Kansas City, Fredericksburg, and we went to serve the church. And so the church there is largely, it's about 400 people, and it's in the city of Erbil, which is um, about an hour from Mosul. I don't know if you guys are aware of geography and places, but Mosul is ISIS headquarters. So that's where they've taken over the city completely, and they have, all the Christians have fled into the neighboring regions. So, which, and Erbil is in Kurdistan, which is still Iraq, but it's the northern part. And um, there are cities like Baghdad. Um, there's a town being fought over right now, Kobani. It's on the, I'm sure you've probably seen it in the news, but it's on the edge of Turkey. And there's a, a, a clash between the Kurdish soldiers who are in the city trying to fend off ISIS who are coming. And then you have Turkish tanks and soldiers and planes on the border looking at the town, the little town. They can see ISIS coming from the other side. But they are doing nothing and allowing this genocide to happen because of racial tension they've had for a long time with the Kurdish people. It's just, it's heartbreaking. I mean, you look at the scenario that so many of these towns find themselves in, fighting for their lives, and they, they just go through and they wipe out villages, systematically killing people. And it's just, the, and I, when I was over here hearing about what was going on, I was, I was terrified. I was actually... Uh, traumatized. Um, I, you know, I, they posted those videos online. You see those guys, you know, just straight up beheading people. And um, when I went, 
there was, I had no fear. And I was, and I was going, what is going on? How come there's such safety and protection of my heart and a sense of God's ability to see me through in this season um, and for everyone I was with? And it was, uh, I was resting in the shadow of the Almighty. You guys know Psalm 91, that verse that you always kind of pray when you go into a hard situation, you know. Um, but it, it's like, you know, he who dwells in the shelter of the Most High will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. And then later it says, a thousand will fall at your side, 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. So experiencing it firsthand, feeling terrified here, but getting that close to it and feeling the complete peace of God and confidence for what God had wanted to do for the people and the land and the healing he wanted to bring and the freedom for the people and the pushing back of darkness and all of this that was rising up by the Spirit of God. He can choose anybody to go. There's nothing special about us. But when he chooses us and gives us the invitation, he will protect, he will guide, he will lead, and you will be in his perfect peace. And I was in his perfect peace the whole time. We went to the very front lines. Um, We went up to give aid to Kurdish soldiers, any of them who were wounded. We got to sing with them. I brought my guitar, and I just had to make up a song on the spot for Kurdistan. And I was teaching them this song, and they were trying to learn it. And Kurdistan was the only word they knew, so they were like, Kurdistan, Kurdistan, you know, it was so funny, but it was really funny just interacting with them, and they had such openness to us, because we were, in a sense, a delegation from America coming to strengthen them, and coming to um, give them hope in the midst of their own, uh, watching their families be killed, and they are just standing, fighting for the land against this evil that's just sweeping across the nation, and, um, So we were there, and you could see in the distance, about two kilometers away, a row of trees, and it was a village that ISIS had taken. So they were there, and we were about two kilometers away. And if they knew we were there as Americans, they would have gone on offensive and attacked where we were. Um, So it was very, you know, it's very volatile. and, um, And even in that situation, knowing that, I can't predict, they could know we're here and literally come. Um total peace of God. And I understood that we were there to serve the people and serve what God's purpose was in the land itself. Because um, I think a lot of times as missionaries, we go with a sense of uh, bravado or a sense of, um, you know, God is, I'm going to bring so much to you. Like I'm going to just, you know, you need what I have. But really when you get there, you're so aware, oh my gosh, like, Lord, my life is not my own, and I'm thankful for this opportunity to just be present with the people, and it was more than anything I said, did, sang, it was just that I was there, and they're like, you're from America? Why come here? What, like, what kickback do you have? Why, why are you coming? You have freedom, you have food, you have all this stuff, but why? And it opens a door to say, I'm here because I love God, and he has given me a love to come and share and just be with you. And that you would be encouraged that God has plans for your nation. He hasn't forgotten you in this hellhole. He is with you. He will strengthen you in this place. 
And that this is a spiritual battle more than it is a physical battle. And we are praying for God to push back darkness in the spirit so that your people go free. So that your people can walk and have peace again. And so that was like, they didn't get it. Um, And it was not, it was just an open door for the gospel into their hearts. So that was on the army front. That was in Kobani. And then we went to um, back to the city in Orbeal, and we did this 50 hours with the church, which is largely made up of refugees who have come from all neighboring parts of Iraq and fled to the safe haven, which at this time it's this city, but again, it's an hour away from uh, Mosul. And um, uh, these people, I mean, we, we d- I did a training in the afternoon and a worship, 10 to 12 worship meeting at night. And many of them, in a sense, just sat down in the chairs. They had just gotten there because they had fled from their village with their clothes on their back, in their car. They have nothing, their family. And there was one family who sat there. And there was a sense of, like, this deep sorrow but deep settledness and joy. is the weirdest mix I've ever seen. M- many of them, actually, a lot of them more despondent than others. But some of them so, like, open and after the week was done, after they would worship with us and pray, I interviewed them. And uh, they were speaking in Arabic. And it was a husband and wife and two daughters who were about like 19, uh, 15 and 19. And they were sharing, we were very rich. And we owned many businesses in this city. And just a few weeks ago, we had to leave because uh, ISIS came. And they took over our town and we left everything. And we came to the city And this week of prayer, like experiencing singing God's word and worshiping Jesus, we have more joy now than we ever had in our lives before, even though we have nothing. And we're happier now as a family than we've ever been in our lives because we have nothing, but we have Jesus. And they wrote a song together as a family and they sang it for me. It was just so beautiful. I mean, it was just their voices, but... It was like all they had and all they were, had to offer as a family. And they are giving a sacrifice of praise. They're giving a sacrifice of worship. They've lost it all, but they are so thankful to be in the presence of God. And they were like, we don't want this worship and prayer to stop because this is a place we've experienced God's presence and it feels so safe in here and it gives us joy. We can go home now and we're not having nightmares and we, you know, we, we feel peace. And that was a testimony of so many. They were scared to sleep alone because they don't know if ISIS is going to come in the night. I mean, so much terror and fear. But to know in the presence of God for to deliver them from the spirit of fear and they them come back and say, I don't have nightmares anymore. Like I'm totally at peace and at rest and able to trust God now. I mean, that is incredible. And it's the fruit of worship and prayer in a land that's never had it before in the history of the land. And Erbil in this city is the second oldest city in the earth. It's the longest inhabited city. So it's had people in it for 7,000 years. Isn't that crazy? So Abraham came out of this city. He fled Erbil. And the citadel in the middle of the city is 7,000 years. But I was thinking, that's a crazy for, it's so normal for us now, worship and prayer. But in that city for 7,000 years, for Jesus longing to be worshipped and loved there, but never known, never loved, never sung to on a daily basis for these people to go. I've never thought of singing the Bible before. 
and for them to come and touch this place of worship and prayer. I mean, it was like transformative. And that's what they experienced, and that's what they, they fell in love with Jesus for what was so normal for me, you know, and what's so normal for us in an experiential level. But I tell you what, who has ever led worship in a, in a language where it's not your home language? Oh, so a few of you. That's great. Awesome. Um, it's, it's fun. It's an experience, right? You feel, you pretty feel pretty much out there, feel vulnerable. It's like, I don't know if I'm singing this right. Like, you don't know if your accent's okay, if they're like laughing, like, what the heck is he singing? You know? <laughs> um, but that's just, that's the way it is, you know, to, for, to lead worship in a, in a culture that's not your home. Um, and uh, when I was there, I um, experienced... A, the language block that was there pushed me as a worship leader and in conversation in heart to communicate from the heart. Um, and that's what I, that was a big takeaway for me. Because when I came back to the States, I was actually more scared. That's a, bad, that's a strong word, but. I was more nervous about asking English-speaking Americans about how I take the metro and bus to get back to Pasadena than I was in the land that I did not know their language. That was the emotions I had. I was like, well, hold on. What is going on in me right now? Why am I more nervous about going back to people that I know their language? And I realized it's because... In America, we can, even though we speak the same language, we can be in a completely different world, so close. And I remember talking to someone in English, asking them, and I felt like we were in a completely opposite world. There was no uh, sense of connection. When I was there, the language barrier pushed you to have to communicate with your heart. You had to be present. You had to figure out beyond the words, what am I saying? Beyond the words, what am I needing? What are you needing? And in worship, beyond the words, beyond the song, what is really going on and what are we here for? We're here to wait and experience the presence of the Lord together in a place of total desperation and in a place of leaning into Him. And that's what ended up happening was it pushed us into a place of, uh, what's the word? You guys know what I'm trying to say. I am, it pushed us into the heart. It pushed us into God's heart and into connecting with him in our heart. So that's probably, that's, that's a big takeaway from this first session I want you to get is if don't shy away from places that you feel weak in and inferior because what you're experiencing 
is you're getting to know Jesus as a friend in what he came to do. He came to a people whose language was not the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These people spoke in a foreign tongue. He was lonely there. He could not get what he wanted to across. His disciples who were with him for three years still didn't get him right before his death. He's like, I've been with you this long. <laughs> you know, do you still not get it? And in worship and in communication, don't shy away from those places where you feel weak, where you feel insecure, where you have to go there in your heart, where it really pushes you into a place of communicating from a deeper place than that superficial, surfacey way that is just normal and that we default to. That's no good. Like, we're going to end up living shallow, lonely lives if we stay there with each other and with the Lord. And we're going to, there's a possibility we get to the end of our life and he says, I don't even know you. Like, you saying, you saying great. I love your voice, but I don't know you. You know, you led amazing worship. Like, people really connected with me in the audience, but, like, I don't know you. Like, we're strangers. We don't want that. You don't want that. I don't want that. I don't want to be a stranger to the one that I'm worshiping in any way, in any level. And entering into his conversation, his language, the language of the heart that goes beyond just lip service. Because he says, your lips are close to me, but your heart is far from me. And that's what I experienced even coming back to America. I was communicating, but it was not the heart. And that's how we can be communicating to Jesus all day through songs and worship, but our hearts could be in a totally other place. Our hearts could be thinking about um, a relational issue that's hard. Our hearts could be thinking about getting coffee afterwards. <laughs> our hearts could be filled with shame because of what you did the other day. Our hearts could be filled with betrayal of someone who like talked behind your back and stabbed you in the back. Your heart could be filled with bitterness, looking out over a few people who've really hurt you in the crowd. Your heart could be filled with anxiety because you want to please the person who invited you in to lead worship. Your, your heart could be filled with um, fear of sounding good and like people saying like, oh, he sucks as a singer, as a musician. Your heart could be filled with so many things and miss the opportunity to connect with the one that you're worshiping. And knowing that he is the I am. And knowing that he is ever present. And that he wants to speak your language. And he wants you to speak his language. And he wants to be your friend. And he wants to know you. You're worth being known. And I feel like I need to tell you that really strong this morning. You're worth being known. God is, you're worth it to him. You're worth it. When other people jump ship, when they abandon it, you're still worth it. When other people give up the fight, you're still worth it. When you don't feel like you're worth it anymore, you're still worth it. And Jesus wants you to know you're worth it. So you will live out of that place knowing you're worth it. And you'll realize, I have something to give. 
because I'm worth being known. I don't have to throw myself out there in hopes that someone would like me. I don't have to be insecure in what I do and seeing and say. I can be settled. My character is sure. My identity is settled. That God wants to know me. And that scary, ever-present reality is something to not be scared of after all. That you know his heart. That you know his love. That you know that he has been after you for a long time. You're worth it. You're really worth it. You are worth it. There was something that was set before Jesus that helped him endure what he went through, and it was a joy. And each of you are part of that joy. You're the reward that he suffered for. You're worth it. He didn't do it for nothing. He gave up everything he had. He had perfect fellowship with the Father and the Son and the Spirit. He was at rest in his authority. He didn't have anyone questioning him. He didn't have anyone arguing with him. He didn't have anyone rejecting him in heaven in that perfect fellowship. And yet he left it to try something out, to see if he would be received and known and loved by people who he gave free will to. And if they would get his heart, and if they would understand his language, and if they would recognize that he was who he said he was, and if they would receive him in his love. He came for you. He came to know you. He doesn't like this distance that you put up. He doesn't like those walls that you keep in front of him protecting yourself. He's mad about that. That's one thing he's mad about. He's not mad at you. He's not perpetually dis disappointed in your life and frustrated that you're not getting it yet. You're not a failure. You're worth it. And he set out on a journey to see something, to look for hearts that were loyal to him. His eyes, it says, he searches to and fro in the world looking for a heart that's loyal to him. And you know that you want to be loyal to someone who really loves you. You don't want to be loyal to a flake. And this is a God that you can trust. This is a love that is sure. This is a love that's known you, but still wants your permission to get to know you. Because even though he knows all the hairs on your head, he knows how he made you up. He needs your permission to come closer. And before and in order to lead other people to that same place and all the worship and singing we do, 
we've got to let him know. We've got to let him know us. We have to be known by him. We can't be leading others in worship with a wall up to God, with a hand up like, I. you've got to know me, God. This far and no further. Who's ever felt that way? You know? It's just like not that too, you know? A lot of times things that he draws us into or in a sense requires of us in our journey, we're like, oh God, like, I don't feel like I can, like what else do you want, you know, in my life? You know, what else are you asking of me? And what's beautiful is he doesn't ask anything that he did not himself give. He's not inviting you into a conversation that he did not find very difficult to come into. He's the one who humbled himself. He's the one who got down on his knees and washed your feet. And in all the ways that we push him away, like Peter say, no. No, Lord, you should never do this. You can't get this close to me. My feet are dirty. No. My feet. No, my feet. Of all the things, no. And he says, no, you have to let me. Otherwise, you have no part with me. We have to let him touch those places in our life. We have to open ourselves up to him to be known. To let him wash us in the deepest place. And receive his love that we may have part with him. What does it mean to have a part with him? That means to be. What's the word? Partake. That's excellent. That's a great word. <laughs> part ache. So there's an ache in having a part. You remember it like that, okay? <laughs> there's an ache in having part with him, but partake. That's what it means. Yeah. To partake with him. Because later he had the supper, remember? So you won't have a part with me means like you won't experience the fullness and the depths. And we want that, you know. We want to go deeper. We don't want to live a surfacey Christian life. We don't want just a form of godliness but no power. We don't want to be close to him with our lips but our hearts are far from him, you know. We don't want to be... Uh, have a name and a reputation that we're alive. But really, we're not alive. We want to be alive. And out of that place, live. Out of that place, act. Out of that place, live, lead. Because remember, you are always living out who you are. You can't, you can't get around it. You can think that you're, that's what an image is. You guys get that, right? You know, an image. Like, you know, sometimes um, this culture is all about image. We know that. 
but like the image that you portray to people. Like this is the real me. This is what I'm like. This is, this is the real me. Sometimes that image is way different than the reality. And when Jesus said, I want worshipers in spirit and in truth, spirit means without a mask, or truth means without a mask. So he wants those who worship in spirit and heart without a mask. So that's what he's inviting us into is to be known by him and to realize it's safe to be known by him and that we don't have to hold him at arm's length. We can ask him to come and be closer to us because that's what he wants. This is good stuff. I get instructed every time I teach. Every time. I I like actually sharing my heart and teaching because for me, it re, well, it tells me one of two things because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. And I'm like, oh, like these are, a lot of times I discover what I really believe about him or my own questions or my, but the truth of what I speak enters back in through my ears and into my heart. And this is the wonderful opportunity we have as teachers, singers, worship leaders, is the very truths that you sing over and over and over from God's word and about him, they re-enter your own ears and they go into your heart. It's an amazing cycle. Because really, the, the one who has the most authority in your life is your own voice speaking God's word in faith over your own life. So if you agree with this stuff, you start speaking it. You start singing it. And it will begin to change your heart and change your emotions and change how you feel about God, change how you feel about each other. Is that good? Yeah? Well, should we take a break? Yeah? How long is your break? You think? 10.45? Okay. If you have a wrench or something, you probably get it back. <laughs> well, I felt like I should say, um, hi again. <laughs> no. Um, no, I I wanted to uh, just see what uh, what. Your heart response, mind response, whatever, was to the last session. Um, there's a couple of things that I think may have been happening in your heart or in there, but just kind of give me a little feedback. Is that too broad? Is that too ambiguous? No. Yes. So you're projecting what you experience in friendship or the lack of it onto God. Yeah, it's really true. And then what you mentioned, mother, father wounds, we do the same thing with that. All the dysfunction we experience at home, we just project it onto him and it's like, you're the same way and he's so not. Mm -hmm. 
really awesome. One of my favorite things is washing dishes. And I, like, I love talking to the Lord washing the dishes, of all things. But that's a good example. For me, personally, I can relate to what you're saying in that it's definitely not something that is glamorous, but it's just one of those things that I'm, I'm more satisfied there for sure than I am when I'm on stage. Oh, oh, I'd much rather, yeah. But again, that's not saying that, God, you're not smart in not giving me a job washing the dishes. Because I think if I was just doing that, in a sense, like I enjoy what the Lord's put in my life. But um, there is when, when the props are moved out, wherever that is for you, that place, how your conversation with him there is, that's such a beautiful way to say it. Like what's the tone of your conversation there? Not just like when you're in front of people or leading and that kind of thing. Because it's almost harder to have a conversation with him there than it is just when there's nothing to. Yeah. It's really, really good. Yeah, man. Fluff in your roses. Yeah, bro. Yeah, no, no roses need to be fluffed anymore. Nope. <laughs> That's really good. I appreciate that. Mm. Hear what you're saying? Yeah. Was there anything like, is that, and was what you said just now, the main thing that felt like, oh, like, that was the expression of what you're saying? Was there anything else that was like, dang, that was either hard to hear or that was the main thing? Yeah. Just hearing the possibility of hearing that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, man. Yes. Uh huh. I didn't, I totally did, huh? Yeah, who are you? <laughs> We don't know. Oh! I repent. Now it's my turn. I, oh. That's so good. Yeah. <laughs> That's so hilarious, bro. Nailed me. Yes. You stand outside, but you're not going in. I th when I was saying that, because I never said that or thought of it before, I thought of the prodigal son. You know? Wasn't that his story? He was like out eating with the pigs, but like he could have come home. He was just so shamed about what he had done and was like, my dad would never love me anymore. Or, you know, I've ashamed him. I've disc like I've dissed the whole family. He was just out doing what he knew. And when the father was waiting, he was expecting, he was a long way off and caught him before he even got close and was like, he started into his apology and halfway through he was like, listen to me. And he just got so loved in that place. When God breaks our heart with his love, that's when we know, <laughs> that's when we know we're a son and a daughter. When our, hearts have, when our hearts have been broken 
by experiencing our own failure to keep his commands, our own failure to be a good friend, to love him, to do what he says, when we experience him in the honesty and repentance of our hearts saying, God, I blew it. I love you still. And I'm trusting that you love me. I'm coming home like that is when we experience the sonship and the daughtership of God. If daughtership is a word. Sonship is, so it probably is. It is now. Yeah. Anything else? No. So I've had a request to share my life story. Is that right? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> my testimony. Testimony. Testimony about Jesus. <laughs> That's all the part I know. Oh, yeah, he carries me through through what? The worst storms? Oh, yeah. <laughs> you were just suggesting. Uh-huh. You never know. We'll each share our testimony. Oh, that's great. So in the sharing, I'll share some of mine. And then throughout this week, I want to get to know you guys' stories a little better. So, so. Mm. give you a little overview, I guess. Um, and isn't it true, though, that knowing someone is not just facts and information, right? Like you were saying, it's just like you know a lot about them. Yeah, you could know these things in my life. But there is a, you know, it's a deeper knowing. And yes, there is a self-revelation in that because those facts tell you about me and they tell you about my life, what I've done, what's been done to me. So yeah, but it's again that same thing of like knowing all this about God, and then still Him saying like I don't I don't know you, yeah. So well, um, where do I start? Um, I I met the Lord when I was a little boy. I was a little youngster, at the age of four. Almost maybe maybe three turning four. I was so young. I asked my mom. She was like, about the experience and stuff. She was like, what the? You remember that? Because I remembered all the details surrounding it. She was like, that's weird. There's no way you would remember that unless you really did meet the Lord and experience all that and stuff. And yeah, my little brother, he had just been born. We're three years apart. So it was like on my probably on the way to being four or early four. But um, the scenario was uh, a crusade, evangelistic crusade, that my parents had invited two teenagers that they knew that were walking away from the Lord, family members, back to hopefully them getting recommitted to the Lord. So they go to this thing, and I'm there, obviously, with my brother, my mom, my dad, and the two others. And so the guy gives the altar call. And I remember it, it was like a basketball coliseum. You know how it's kind of rounded? You know, um, and then they have the stage down there and people. And uh, This is in the hills of Arkansas. This is like in Redneckville. This is in like Pine Bluff, Arkansas, where I grew up. So, yes, I'm proud of it. Um, so, yeah, so this thing's going on, this event, and... All of a sudden, I just remember the experience of crying. 
And I was crying. And I remembered, or I, I knew, number one, that I was a sinner. Like I had that cognitive knowing that I was a sinner. I don't know how. Because by that time, the, the worst things you've done has been disobedient to mom and dad. You know what I mean? Or just whatever. It's not like, but I knew I needed Jesus. And I knew he loved me in that moment. Two things, that I was a sinner and that I felt his love. So I, I looked up at my mom and I was like, the guy gave an altar call. And I don't know if my request was connected to that or if I just was like, she saw me crying and invited me to go down. But I was like, I want to go down. I want to have Jesus in my heart. And that was the language. I want Jesus to come into my heart. So she was sh- kind of shocked, too, because, you know, she takes the other two to get saved and her own little boy gets saved, you know. Um, and so, so then she takes me down to the front. And I remember sitting there, and I see the evangelist up on the stage. And he's pacing back and forth, and the people are gathered at the altar call. And, you know, there's so much stuff. I think there's probably music going on and whatnot. And... In that moment, I just, I received him into my heart. And um, the next scene, so to speak, it almost feels like a dream. You know how like old memories feel like dreams, just like way back in there. So the next scene of the dream, in a sense, is me in my car seat. I've got the little things on, you know, sitting in the car seat. I'm in the back seat. (laughs) And um, we're driving. And there was a song that was popular on those days called um, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, your love has melted my heart. And um, this was at the, at the, they were singing it at the conference thing. And we were passing by this billboard. And on the billboard was an ice cream cone. Someone had an ice cream cone in their hand, but it was melting. And I remember feeling like, oh, my heart feels like that ice cream cone. Like in that song, Jesus, your love has melted my heart. It's like the connection of all those things. Like I was crying, just feeling his love. Like his love was melting my heart. And, um, and so, so real. And in that moment, I knew that he was with me and that he loved me. And, um, and that really has been the story of my life, the testimony. It's like his love has really just in every season that I felt either hurt or felt hardened, his love keeps melting my heart. And his love keeps softening my heart to the point of where it feels like a melted ice cream cone, you know, and, I have experienced his love over and over and over through my life. Um, when I was seven, I, I got filled with the Spirit. My mom uh, and dad both loved the Lord, um, thankfully. It, by no means, we had a perfect family, goodness gracious. But it was more just like they loved him, and my, my, my mom and dad are, um, uh, my dad's a worship leader and a pastor, and my mom homeschooled us all. Four boys and a girl. She props to my mom. And uh, so, we, you know, lived at home. And um, I was talking to someone the other day. It was in, in Iraq, actually. One of the ladies, she was like, you were homeschooled? She's like, praise God. She's homeschooling her own kids. She's like, praise God that there's at least one functional homeschooler I've met <laughs> <laughs> integrated into society. I was like, yeah, right? You know? <laughs> We are a weird bunch. We are a weird bunch. Who else has been homeschooled here? Yeah, come on. Yes, we made it. We made it, guys. Yes, we did it. We didn't come out crazy. No, a lot of times I I meet other homeschoolers, and it's just like social disconnect, you know? It's crazy. It's like this, like, oh, it's so weird. I don't know how to describe it, but 
you other people, you just, <laughs> you guys are normal. Yeah, our view of you is you're normal and we're the odd ones. It's funny. Anyways, so yeah, at seven, because I was home a lot, uh, my mom had this jar of quarters. And every time I memorized a verse, she would give me a quarter. I would be a rich man if I had taken her up on it. I so wish I did it more. But that was kind of like the atmosphere was to get the word in your heart. And that's my mom's passion. She was like, I want my kids to have God's word in their heart, hide it in their heart. And so that was their best way to bribe us to do it. So, you know, like when I, my dad put out, if you memorize Psalm 37, I'll give you BB gun. So it's like 40 verses. So I was like, okay, I'm going to do it. So I'm like nine years old and I finally memorize it, you know, and I get my BB gun. I feel awesome. And you know, killing birds, which I regret now, but, you know, <laughs> killing everything, <laughs> lizards and birds and everything. Um, so that was kind of like the home environment, the value in the word of God, which is so awesome. Um, you know, and so we you went through different seasons at seven. I knelt down with my mom on the bed and just prayed for the Holy Spirit to come. And then he gave me a little language, you know, that little tongues thing. Yeah. And what's that was been such a big sign for me because I'm like at seven, I have I speak the same phrase just now with a bunch of other ones that I spoke when I was seven. And I go, how is that possible? There's nothing else I remember from seven except this language that I've gone years and not spoken in tongues and yet pick right back up where I left off and go. That's a testimony. It's a seal. It's a sign of God's presence with me. You know what I mean? It's a physical sign that he's never left me, that I have that language, that I can talk to him, you know, and going back to what we were sharing in the other thing, that's that secret language you have with God, that your heart can speak in mysteries, but yet you get to know him and he starts unpacking himself in your heart. So if you don't have the Holy Spirit by the end of this week, you better get it. It's pretty awesome. <laughs> yeah, we'll have, we'll have times where we can pray and ask him for that. It's really amazing. So that was at seven. You know, uh, move on, you know, lots of uh, life events. We moved a lot as a family because my dad was a worship leader and um, he uh, would travel and an itinerant ministry. So me and my brothers eventually started becoming his band. So like, you know, as I learned instruments, I would play drums with him or play piano and sing. And so kind of a musical family. Um, people would always make jokes. It's like the Von Trapp family singers. But, you know, that's just you lived with that and that was kind of your life. Um, and uh, so I started music lessons when I was like five uh, with violin. Violin and drums were my first two. Violin and drums. These seem, people go like, that's so different or opposite. And yeah, in some sense, yeah. But what it laid for me was two tracks, in a sense, for the train to go on, which was rhythm and melody. You know, and it really gave me like a great musical foundation. And so it... And violin's amazing because it trains you in melody and it trains your ear. So you learn sight and you learn ear in like learning how to hit the right note and have the right pitch. So I highly recommend it. So if you haven't, do them. If you have kids one day, start them off like it. <laughs> no, I'm kidding. No, that, that's really, it's a great foundation for music. Um, and so my, my parents saw my interest little and kind of gave me the opportunity to do lessons, which I'm really thankful for. So praise God for that, you know. Um, they weren't all, we want you to be a scientist, and we don't want drums in the house. You know, some parents, you know, feel that way. They're like, you know, we want you to do something else, you know. And this really, having parents that see it and that enable and make a way 
in as much as they're able to, there's something really special for that. So I'm so really grateful, you know. Um, and they weren't like really hard parents where like they would beat me if I didn't do my, you know, lessons or, you know, didn't perform right. Although my mom and dad are both firstborns and perfectionists. So, and I'm a firstborn, so I got the double portion, double of the double. <laughs> you know, like perfectionist, you know, firstborn, have to do everything right. I was always the good kid. My brothers had a love-hate relationship with me because my parents were always like, be just like David, do what he's doing. And so then they hated me and loved me, but hated me more than they loved me. Um, <laughs> you know, it's like sibling rivalry, except I was always the one like, you know, when mom and dad are gone and I'm babysitting, I have the authority to, like, write if they did. We had the sad face, happy face thing. So I'd write, like, John gets a sad face because he was, like, mean to. And so I really regret, like, <laughs> being so mean. I know. But, um, but we, our family, though, I tell you, we've been to the ringer, but we have such a sweet relationship as a family now. Um, and God's brought a ton of healing. We've been through um, ups and downs for sure. Um, even in a sense, just a real breakdown in our family um, through communication. And, you know, I say one of, the, one of the horrible things about growing up in the church, I say horrible is a strong word, but it kind of is, is that there's a ton of religious pressure. And you grow up, especially me as a firstborn, as the poster child of this image you have to portray and keep up that you're doing awesome, that you're spiritual, all this stuff. When in reality, you feel like, oh, there's no way I can live up to that and I'm not living up to that. And yet you start living out of that place because it's safer, you know. And through this process of living, that has that, in a sense, that image has shattered in my own heart, eyes, in other people's eyes. And just the way my life has turned out, which is not how I planned. But God, through that, has brought so much redemption and healing that I've been able to get in touch with him in those places of brokenness in my own life, find him there, and he bring healing and bring me through, you know. And it's amazing what he's able to do with um, when you're at your worst, when you're at your lowest, you know. And that's my story is finding him there, finding his mercy in those places. And so, you know, through my whole teen years and all that, you know, you grow up um, just a skewed view of God and life, even though I loved him. And, you know, I knew God was awesome. It was still in one sense kind of superficial, although you have those moments of like really that friendship and knowing it's just still not very deep. Um, and then times where he really does awaken your heart and you do go deeper. Um, and that's that's awesome. Um and I'm thankful for those times. It gives you a taste of something, but friendship is a continual, steady going forward, going, continuing. And um, I'd say I've experienced the Lord's zeal and friendship and love to me much more than I've even come close to experiencing. I am where I am because I've succeeded. I am where I am because I've really pursued God and been awesome and done all the right things. No. I mean, it has been his love and mercy that's chased me down but in that response, I have an opportunity to respond back in love. And that in itself is its own reward. It's not like I'm doing it because, you know, everyone will think I'm awesome. It's ultimately because I want to get to know him and I want to love him. And I want to experience what he's like, you know. Um, 
So, yeah, um, teen years, now that I'm the ripe old age of 34, I have, I know it's so weird, you just, time flies, you know, you just go, wow, I used to be four, <laughs> 30 years, you know, I, I used to, whatever, I mean, I like, you know, you go through those seasons, like, my life is half over, my life is, or it's a third over, whatever, however you want to, if I'm going to live to be 100, I'm doing good, I'm, it's only a third over, yeah, which I plan on living a long time, Lord willing, it's not old, <laughs> thank you, no, I do talk to people older than me, they're like, shut up, you're a baby, what the heck are you talking about, and then I see, then I see people just graduating college, and I'm like, oh my gosh, when I was 15, I thought that was ancient, you know, you think like the grade above you is like, they're so old. You know what I mean? It's so weird. It's all relative. And you feel like, oh my gosh, I feel like still, you know, 25 inside my heart, you know. Which is a sign, I think, because we're eternal beings, there's like that ideal age that we come into the fullness of our identity and like who we are. And I think when we do get resurrected, the Lord's going to have us at our prime. You know, we're going to be resurrected in a sense in that fullness of life that we really enjoy, you know, discovery and who we are and all that, which is going to be really great. Yeah. So now back to, um, yeah. Um, yeah, I was talking about the religious thing, right? Yeah, like how dysfunctional that is, right? Yeah. It's dysfunctional. It is so dysfunctional. It's so bad. It's so hard. Because there's such a pressure in the church of everybody being good boys and good girls. And that's not what it's about. He didn't come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This is not a license for doing whatever we want. This is an invitation to know a God who knows the pleasure of walking with him in holiness is better than seriously the passing pleasure of sin. Because sin has a pleasure, otherwise we wouldn't do it. Sin has a payback, otherwise we wouldn't do it. Like, I wouldn't do the things I want, except there was some sort of gratification in it. But in the passing of that, we realize the emptiness of that. And we experience him saying, do you want life and life more abundantly? Because that's what I came to give you. But the enemy is stealing, killing, and destroying from you right now. And, okay, this is a good point to insert this. When we started this section, the second session, I felt the Lord wanted me to ask you guys a question. It sounds really dramatic, but it's not. But it is. But it's not. But it is. <laughs> um, the question is, um, do you want to go there? And do you want to go far? Um, because we could stay at a kind of, you know, at a so-so level. But I think the Lord really wants to invite us into a deeper place together. Um, and it's only if you're willing. It really is. It's only if you're willing. So I can't go there for you. I can't make you go there. I can't go there myself without the help of God. But we, we have to make the choice. So are you down? No. And really? Okay, so let's go there. Because I, I don't want to, this to be, I want this to be the fullness of whatever God has for us, for your sake. You know, because you're going to come out of this bright. You're going to come out of this shiny. You're coming out of this so 
inspired in your heart for a life that you've tasted that's truly life, that doesn't come from good teaching, it doesn't come from anything else, but the life of Jesus that you've tasted and touched. But you have to open yourself up to it and say, God, I'm hungry. Because he said, blessed are the hungry, for they will be satisfied. I will fill the hungry. I fill them with good things. And that seems to be the environment. There's a hunger here. Even Lindy was telling me, she's like, there's a brand new hunger that's here on the base, that's in this school, that's in this very room. That means it's in your hearts. So I want to tap into it, and it is drawing on me. You guys are drawing, in a sense, me going to places that are not very superficial, but it is, like you said, speaking in those things that may be a little rattling, but it's for our own good. So we can go there. All right? All right. Amen. Let's do it. And this is it. This is what it's about. So, okay, so, yeah. Okay, any questions? I just kind of open it up. Um, From what I've shared, just in a little bit, either about myself or what I shared, you know, over this time, I just want to open it up for any type of... um, comments or question on what I've shared, because I, w- I want some things in my life that I've experienced and, w- and went through to be a provoking point, and like, um, so what do you mean either or, if that makes sense, so. There's anything. Yes. that's a great question that's a really good question so she her question was like in the in the peeling process of the onion where do we know ah i know god or he knows me is that even a possible to have the confidence oh yeah i'm gonna get there and he's not gonna say that to me because my hope in sharing this is not a um yeah, like you're not saved until he gets, you know, he, he gets to that point where he really knows you. Um, I let the, I try to let the word speak for itself because each of you have the Holy Spirit who's going to unpack the truth of that in your own heart. But what I think, what I would say to that is like, um, in one sense, I don't know. Like I'm in the same boat. Like I don't know where that line is, where you cross over and you're known by God. Is that even possible in this life to know? I think, I think there are choices we make out of friendship and towards having a deeper friendship with him, whether that means like, I know Samantha was telling me she let go of coffee because the Lord invited her into that. That's a choice she made. She could have said no, What's that? Yeah, he's proud of her. Yeah, that's great. <laughs> you know, I, it looks like the Lord, I'm not close enough with the Lord where he's not asked me that question yet. So good grief. So does that mean, do I know him? Samantha does. I don't know if I, you know. <laughs> um, you know thanks so much. 
Uh, <laughs> hey, is David okay? Are you are you guys okay? You guys <laughs> Um Yeah. I don't know if there's a, a point, but I think the things that we do, you know that feeling you have with a friend where you make a choice for the friendship or whatever, and there's that deep gratefulness. You look at one another at one point and it's just like Oh, yeah, you either get each other or you're thankful that you thought they got you a gift or something. I don't know. I think that can happen with God where you come through and you're just like, it's like deep thankfulness. Oh, I'm so glad that you helped me by your spirit make that choice. And now I feel the reward of that. And it's just like it's more of your presence and it's more love for you. And that's a reward in and of itself. And that reward is the eternal life. That's what he's saying. It's like to know him is eternal life. And that process of knowing, it's not an unattainable like thing. It's the process of knowing that is, we know in part, and we will always prophesy in part. You know how he's saying, like, we know in part like a veil, but one day we'll know fully as we're fully known. So, like, there is an unknown that we have now that's just built in, but one day we will know fully. But we don't have to be in this place of fear on this side. Like, oh my gosh, I don't know. But if it's a godly fear that leads us to repentance, that's a good fear. Because he's like, worldly sorrow brings death. That's no good. But godly sorrow, it produces in us like this, this, this repentance that leads to life. So if you feel sorrowful, like, man, I'm not valuing this in my own heart and life. It produces repentance in you. Gosh, I've got to change the way that I'm relating to you and living that's a good thing. Does that make sense? And it leads us into life. Did that kind of answer it a little bit? Yeah, I hear what you're saying. Yes. Because that process is experiencing his total, 100% love for us, even in our totally weak love. You know, and that's the part of Song of Solomon that's beautiful is because it, when, the, when it shows the picture of the bride and Jesus, she is experiencing his love in the place where she's like, I don't, I don't feel at all worthy of your love. And he calls her one who has dove's eyes at the beginning of the book. And we all know what dove's eyes means. For those of you who don't, a dove can only focus on one thing at a time. So he's saying to her, you have eyes for only me, like you focus on me, even though she's at the beginning of her journey and she's like, I feel really weak in my love, but he's no, I'm calling out what's in there. Does that make sense? So it's him seeing our potential and our love for him and calling us into that. Yeah. That's the paradox of it. Yes. Oh. That's so true. <laughs> yes. Mm -hmm. I think so. Mm. That's so good. Yes. Yes. Oh, there was something I was going to say on, on the back end of that. What was that? Um, yeah, it does eyes. Um, you're talking about knowing. Not, oh, okay. Okay, you guys remember the story of Nathaniel? He was one of the guys in the earliest Gospels who um, 
It was before Jesus started. I think it's in John. Yeah, it's in John. So Nathaniel is, he's the guy under the fig tree. We, if you hear that, that story in the Bible? Yes? Yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, so the, I'll give you a little back story. So Nathaniel is, I think he's a, 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 a de- devout Jew. So he's, he's in Judaism. And he's under the tree praying. And one of the disciples runs up and is like, we found the Messiah. We know who he is. Come, come with me. We'll go find him. So then he and Nathaniel take off to go see Jesus. And he's like, and, and Nathaniel, the question it says is in his mind. And what he's saying is, let me go see if this is really him. Like, let me go see what good can come from Nazareth. Like, what is this? Is this the real? And he's like, come and see. So Nathaniel runs and he sees Jesus to discover if he's the real deal, to know Jesus. And then Jesus flips it and goes, hey, so this is a man with no guile. You're, you're the guy with no, nothing false in him. And Nathaniel's like, how do you know me? And so instantly Jesus flips it. And Nathaniel, in his search for Jesus, Jesus goes, you're the one that's been seen and loved and known. And he goes, I saw you while you were under the fig tree. And instantly he's like, oh, my gosh. Out of the word of knowledge and the knowledge of his own character, he goes, you do know me. And then he's like, you are the Messiah. You are the son of the living God. And he's like, I want to show you even greater things than this. You're going to see the angels of heaven ascending and descending on the son of man. So he gives him a promise about his future. So in that place of intimacy, where it's not that Nathaniel was like discovered all these things about Jesus, he was just known when he got into his presence, and then he's like, all right, here's your future. You're going to have great revelation. You're going to see me in glory. Does that make sense? So in that place of like being known is the promise comes of discovering who he is in a greater way. And God's the one who gives it. So God the one is the one who speaks and says, I know you. I know what you're thinking. I know what your life is like. And then you're like, oh, my gosh. You, you, it breaks us in our own zeal. And then he goes, but I'm going to take you, and I'm going to show you things you've never seen before. I'm going to give you even better revelation than what you came to look for. So in your coming this week, God's going to give you more than you bargained for. He really is. He's going to give you more than you bargained for. You're going to come in saying, I want to learn about this and this and this. I want to learn how to be a better worship leader. I want to learn play new chords. I want to figure, like, be good friends with somebody. I want to meet the man and woman of my dreams. I want to blah, blah, blah. No, I'm just kidding. No, but God is going to give you more than you bargained for in him if you say yes. He really is. Any other things? Yes. Yes, Linda, yes. Go for it. Great question. When did I go from being, our family go from being the Von Trapp family into more individual calling and worship? Um, that was a process. It was started probably when I was like, I think I led worship for youth group for the first time when I was like 16, but it was just once, once or twice, and it was so bad and so awkward, and I hated my voice. I hated singing. Oh, my gosh. Did not want to sing. I was just a musician, you know, and so my dad was the worship leader, but I enjoyed the privilege of taking people into God's presence, and largely you do that as a singer or worship leader, 
But at the same time, it was not something I had on my grid that I'm going to be just like my dad one day in that sense. Because um, I actually wanted to write music for movies. Um, I wanted to do soundtracks and, you know, I loved writing and recording. I was really inspired by God in a season. Um, my first tape ever was like when I was eight years old, and it was of this Phil Keggy instrumental CD called Wind in the Wheat. And I just would listen. I'd put on my little headphones, my little Walkman, and just like get taken somewhere. I would just close my eyes. And it was so impactful and moving how music could take me there. So that's a bunny trail. But that's kind of at that point, like I realized um, this maybe could be in my future leading in worship. When I was like 19, 20, um, and um, again, led worship at, again for any kind of youth group context. And, um, yeah, and then I, I left home at 23 to lead worship for a church in Minneapolis, or just north of Minneapolis in Cambridge, Minnesota, um, in a span of two hours getting the invitation and deciding I'm going to move away from my family. It was crazy because my dad got an invitation from this church, and they were in a transitional period. They wanted to do a house of prayer, and he was like, son, I can't go, but I want to tell him that maybe you could go in my stead. Would you be willing to do this? And he said, you have two hours to decide. <laughs> Literally. <laughs> I'm like, are you serious? He's like, yeah, I'm going to meet with him in two hours. And I, I was like, oh, gosh, the pressure. And I just sat. And I went sat down by, by, by my bed, and I just was, like, stunned. Like, God, how do I hear from you? How do I have some, like, dramatic encounter that, you're, this is right. The only thing I had was peace. So I went with that peace. And I said yes, you know. And it was this journey, and it kind of, like, took me away from the home for the first time. And so that's kind of why I set out on my own to kind of, like, all right, you, you may be giving me and trusting something to me in this. And you put a lot of these skills in my life, and you've given me this heart to lead people in your presence. So I'm going to go for it. So I went for it. It was great. It was bad in some ways, you know, it just, it wasn't like the huge success naturally. I thought um, they didn't, you know, start a 24-7 house of prayer or anything, you know. But I came back, and it was a great learning experience, so really good. It was in the middle of, I went in the middle of a church split and in the middle of them wanting to start a house of prayer. So it was like drama at every Sunday. It was just like, you know, you had people fighting against each other, and not like physically, but, you know, just like this whole slander thing, and, um, but such beautiful people in the midst of it that I got to know and that I learned how to lead in the midst of great tension. You know, it was really interesting. So anyway, that was my own journey. And my, each of my brothers, they are musical too, my sister, but they had slightly different journeys in that they weren't, they haven't pursued it as like, in a sense that I have. Um, sorry, let me check myself. It's getting annoying. Um, yeah, so like one of my brothers, he loves football and he wanted to do football but was kind of frustrated by us moving around, so he was never able to do a sports team consistently. And so he grew up with this kind of like, you know, you know, it's just, it's hard. Like the, the missionary life is not easy if you have desires to do stuff, you know. Um, and then my other brother, like he's amazing at soccer, but is like a businessman type mind, you know. My other brother, he's like classical pianist, who's going to train for Juilliard, blah, blah, blah. So he... It, just different bents, you know, for each of them. So they all kind of found their way. But as a, 
us stopping was around me at 23, like 2003. Um, and uh, yeah, like, it's funny, like, not just the fact that we moved on, but there was internal issues that really um, were uh, the revelation of our family breakdown that we had kind of glossed over in the years previous of just this angst. And I even remember when I was like 17, 18, um, I wanted, my dad is amazing, man. He's like incredibly, um, he's almost the opposite of me in a ton of ways. He's very focused. He's very by the book. He's a uh, um, he's an idea man, always thinking of ideas to build stuff, do stuff. And me as a boy, I didn't realize, but when it was, I wanted to connect with him. And more emotionally, because I'm more emotional guy, I feel like blah, blah, blah. So I felt this disconnect from him. And my dad's an amazing dad, but um, he, you know, in that way, I don't know if he had the tools to connect with me in the way that I needed. At the same time, he led me as a son in some incredible ways that I'm so thankful for that helped me because he understood how I was made at the same time. Because parents do. I mean, you think your parents don't understand you, but they do. You know, because they, like, you don't get me. You don't get, you know, whatever. But they do. They, they love us. Um, so, but I realized, like, there was just a breakdown because even when we would be on ministry trips, I would be so frustrated, like, is ministry more important than connecting with me or connecting with your own son? You know, and these different things that he and his focus, he had to do what was required during the week of ministry and all those stuff. And, you know, when I had issues and things in my heart, you know, and I would just be like, so it was a mixture of my own uh, selfishness and frustration mixed with his focus on the ministry that created this, like, tension. Um, and so... Yeah, and there was a religious dynamic to that. It felt like a religious spirit, um, you know, that was, like, very performance-oriented. And you have to put on, it was, the image was encouraged, like, put on the face to just get through the worship set and all that stuff. That wasn't the language, but you know what I mean? Just kind of, like, make it through, and, and that's never helpful. You ha if you do that, you have to address it later. You know what I'm saying? You have to, and you have to be real with God in the process, for sure, because sometimes... We have to lead through our own junk. It's not like we have everything great before we go up there and lead worship and our lives are peachy. But you have to lead through difficult times, but that doesn't mean you, you, you uh, disassociate yourself completely from those things. You revisit it, you know, and you go there. That's one of the things I've learned. Like, it's really important to be real, to be in touch. Um, but not to stay there in introspection because that was my downfall. I would just be so introspective and so, like, you know, focused on my feelings. I couldn't see the forest or the trees. I'm, like, right in the middle of everything. I couldn't see. But being able to be called out beyond that into the high call, the high vision, which the Lord has brought my dad and other people in my life to help in that way because that's not an area I'm super strong, you know, but it's really given me a lot of courage to face that and also to grow in that area so that it will strengthen the other so much. Because if, if and when I am, um, I see the call and I see the vision and I move forward in clarity and focus and discipline, it helps my heart so much be steadied that could be really up and down and feel kind of like, um, you know, bipolar. You, know, you feel that way sometimes. Um, 
So God, God will, and this is one thing I want to say to you from that. I'm kind of like totally going off on your question. But um, um, God will notice the people he brings into your life. He will bring people into your life that are not like you. That will either frustrate you, rub you the wrong way, or if you yield to it, they will help you succeed. Because the feelers, you need a visionary person in your life. All you visionaries out there, you need a feeler in your life so you don't bulldoze over people. You know what I'm saying? Like, you've got to have that good balance. you got to realize the end goal is not the end all. You know, it's not like the perfect worship set with everyone raising their hands is not the end goal. You know? Or the, you know, if you're a business person, like the uh, having the business completed and doing all that stuff. Or, you know, if you're a songwriter, having the ultimate song that, like, you know, all the churches sing is not the end goal. It's really not. That actually comes as the process in the fruit of working through stuff where you're real and good stuff comes out of that. And a song is born. A song is like a baby. You can write that one down. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> a song is like a baby. It comes from intimacy. And once it's born, it has a life of its own. And so many people will be touched and interact by that song from the fruit of intimacy. It's amazing. So that gives you a good example. You know, you could apply that to a lot of things, but what comes from intimacy in your life? What is it? And what will God use to touch the nations with it? Because as parents, you know, I'm touching people, groups, and nations. I'm reporting back to my mom and dad saying, oh, my gosh, God is doing so much here and there. And they, they feel so much joy. They cry. They're like, oh, my gosh, son, like the Lord is doing so many things through your life, and we just rejoice with you. But, like, I'm like, they were receiving such an inheritance in the kingdom because they trained me up the best they could. They poured into my life. They loved me, you know. Isn't that amazing? And God credits it to their account. And all the stuff that you do in faith, God will credit to your account. So I'm thinking all the people in all the world that have taken that song worthy of it all and sung it and God's kept them through a hard time. He's lifted their hearts into his presence. He credits that to my account. I'm like, what the heck? Not that, not for any other reason, but like, son, do you see how I can use your life? Your little two loaves and fishes, if you break it and give it to me, I can feed multitudes. That's what your life is like. So let him do that with your life. You know, offer him the little loaves and fishes you have. Say, God, this is all I have. And out of intimacy, he can take something that will feed thousands. Isn't that amazing? <laughs> God's so good. He really is good. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. So good. I know you had a question. No, I don't. <laughs> oh, 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 yeah, that was my pastor's son. That's okay. No, no, I don't have a son. Sure, that's right. Just double check him. <laughs> my little boy that's not there, right? No, I don't have a boy. <laughs> Hush, hush. <laughs> uh, 
<laughs> no worries. <laughs> Any other awkward questions? I'm just kidding. No, no, no. Okay, I want to ask, okay, who has, in this time, has felt a physical sensation of something you didn't before, which we could say is the Holy Spirit, either I'll give you a few examples, or your heart's burning, your hands, or your, like a physical sensation of either tingling, or just an awareness, maybe it's wind, maybe it's the air conditioner, I don't know, but just the, the, the Holy Spirit's presence physically, or, or internally, like a, like a fluttering or a shaking, um, who's who's experienced anything like that? Just over the time, whether it's in the first session or this. Okay, so about a little more than half. Okay. And again, it's not. There's nothing. Uh, you know, it. You know, it's just it's saying what it is and just acknowledging it's the Holy Spirit. And usually, that's a sign God has something for you in a special way. Um, that he's, he's really wanting to show and give in this time. So it's an invitation more than it is um, anything. It's like saying, I'm present with you on this topic. Like I have something from this I want to give to you. Do you want it? Are you hungry? So let's just take the remaining time, and I want us to just open ourselves up to the Holy Spirit. And for those of you, all of us, you know, whether you felt anything physically or not, but for those who have felt something, I want you to... Um, yeah, we're just going to op- close our eyes, open our hands, and just invite the Holy Spirit to increase and to s- put his seal on your heart of these things um, that have been spoken. Because these are real seeds. This, this will bear real f- fruit in your lives. And the enemy really wants to take it out like a bird. And he wants to take it out and steal, kill, and destroy from it. But if the Lord can seal it up in the good soil of your heart and say, no, not this one. This thing is going to change their life forever because it's real life and it's going to produce real fruit. Let him do that and just allow whatever. I mean, if, if you manifest, that's great. If you shout, Shabbat, whatever, I don't know, or in silence, but I just want to go there with him. So Holy Spirit, we just, um, we thank you so much for your word that brings life. Your words are spirit and they are life. And we, um, Holy Spirit, we open ourselves up to you and we invite you, Lord, to come and to um, let us experience you, Lord, and what you want to say. Holy Spirit, we draw on you in our hearts and spirits. 